You're listening to the All Indie Writers Podcast with host Jennifer Mattern. Helping serious freelancers, bloggers, and indie authors go pro. Hello and welcome. I'm Jen Mattern, your host of the All Indie Writers Podcast. Thank you for joining me today for episode number 16. You can find show notes and links to resources mentioned in this episode by visiting allindiewriters.com slash podcast slash 16. Today's episode is a special Q&A session where I'll tackle questions submitted by both podcast listeners and readers of the blog. We'll take a look at tips for using your new website to land early freelance writing clients, the viability of freelance poetry, entry-level technical writing and content mills as a source of portfolio pieces, and selling text link advertisements on your blog. Let's get to it and jump right into our first community question from Ashley Fleming. Ashley says, I seem to be in that daunting freshman stage where one decides, this is it, I'm going to be a freelance writer, but doesn't have the portfolio or experience to get started. While I've done a bit of research on bulking these up for clients, a few of the listings under your writer's markets tab struck a particular chord with me. My true passion isn't just writing, it's poetry. If you have insight into that realm, I'd love to know. Is there a realistic chance I could make a career out of freelance poetry, or should I settle for something a little less bohemian? Here's the way I see it. You can realistically make money pursuing any type of writing, but some specialties can involve a little more work and creativity, and poetry is one of those areas. It's not because there's a lack of markets publishing poetry, The issue is that many poetry markets don't pay particularly well. But there are some things you can do to make a more viable career out of it. For example, you can subscribe to market updates so you don't miss calls for submissions. I feature some of these on the All Indie Writers job board, for example, which you can subscribe to in your favorite feed reader. You can find that at allindiewriters.com slash jobs. And that's actually separate from the ongoing Writers Market database that Ashley mentioned in her question. Over the last month, for example, I featured calls for submission paying anywhere from $25 to $200 for poetry. Another tip is to focus on selling multiple poems or series of poems wherever possible. That $200 per poem market I just mentioned was a good example. They accepted up to four individual poems per submission and paid a $1,000 rate for a series of five poems or more. And they also paid more than that for poems that were over 50 lines. Now, along those lines, another tip is to look for markets that either pay per line of poetry or pay more for longer poems. I'm not going to tell you to focus only on shorter poetry to get the most money for your time when it comes to flat rate markets, and there are plenty of flat rate markets. But always keep the payment for your time in the back of your mind when you're deciding if a market's worth pursuing. Another option is to look beyond literary publications. Get creative in the types of markets you pursue. For example, poets might find a home in greeting card markets. More general consumer magazines sometimes accept poetry. Kids magazines might be a good market depending on the nature of your poetry. You could work with anyone from corporate execs to children's authors on poetry designed to promote their work in ad campaigns or other marketing materials. Or you might even write personal poetry for individual clients. 
For example, you might write poetry for brides-to-be for their wedding invitations, or to moms-to-be for their baby shower invites. One example was a recent baby shower I went to where they used a poem to ask people to bring books instead of cards for the baby. So things along that line you might find a freelance market for. You could even write love poems or proposals if that's your thing. And the benefit here with these private clients is that you can probably get away with selling non-exclusive rights. And that allows you to resell your poetry to other similar buyers down the road. So you might even write themed poetry ahead of time and make the collection available for purchase through your professional site in addition to those custom projects. And one final tip is, you know, of course you have the option to diversify or you don't have to solely freelance. You can also go the indie publishing route by publishing your poetry collections through Amazon and other online booksellers. And that could be a way to get some of your work out there if you're struggling to find markets for your individual poems. So yes, I think you can make a viable career out of writing poetry, but I also think it's gonna take a little more work and creativity in seeking out new markets than some other specialties. There's no reason you can't pursue poetry while also taking on other freelance assignments if you happen to have another specialty where gigs are more easily accessible at least while you get the hang of selling your poetry. And no matter what route you choose to take, Ashley, I wish you the best with that. Now I want to move on to a question from an anonymous blog reader who will simply call Jay. Jay says, I'm a new freelance writer trying to get started. I have a small website I'm using to build my portfolio. I use WordPress because I can't afford my own domain or my own hosting account yet. I'm trying to land a few clients to jumpstart my freelance writing career. Any tips? While I'm not a fan of using free WordPress blogs for professional sites because of how unprofessional it looks and the risks it poses when you're later ready to move to a better solution, I'm not going to get into that issue again here. I actually just covered that in a recent episode and I've covered it on the blog several times. Instead, what I want to try to do is offer a few tips here for landing clients with your website, specifically related to Jay's website. Now, because Jay asked to remain anonymous, I'm not going to share their website address here, but there are some pretty big issues that I saw on their site right now. First, it isn't finished. The About page still has the generic copy placed on WordPress's sample page. For a portfolio site, I couldn't for the life of me find any portfolio pieces, and there wasn't any contact information, which is probably the number one sin in building a website to attract clients. Now, I'm hoping this was simply a case of a new writer who knows that they have a lot of work ahead of them in building a professional site, because what Jay has right now isn't going to cut it. It currently comes across as a personal blog. The first post on the site is all about Jay's insecurities. It combines information about Jay's fears of failing to succeed with Bible verses, so after looking at Jay's new site in the making, here are a few tips and a bit of tough love. First, don't waste your time blogging yet when you don't even have basic copy on your site. If you want the site to attract clients, it needs to focus on your services and the benefits you offer prospects. That should be front and center, not the blog. Next, don't write blog posts that tell clients why they shouldn't hire you. There is no good reason to talk about your insecurities on a professional blog. Get a personal blog for that. 
Your business blog is for your clients' benefit. It's not a place for you to ramble on about personal trips and family stories. And the heading of Jay's blog actually mentions this is both a freelance writing site and a personal blog. I'm sorry, but you can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. If you want the personal blog, set up another blog for it. If there are two things you generally shouldn't discuss on a professional business blog, it's politics and religion. Unless you're specializing in writing for religious groups, keep it off your blog. Prospects don't go to your business website looking for Bible verses or political opinions. There are very few cases where these kinds of posts are a good idea. Next tip is to always, always, always make it easy for prospects to contact you. Have a contact form on your site, put your email address on there, add a phone number, Skype account if that's how you want to be contacted. But for goodness sake, do not forget to add something as basic as a contact page to your professional website. And finally, your portfolio also needs to be obvious. Make it easy for prospects to see some of your past samples. They don't generally need to see a lot, but you have to show them something. If you don't have paid samples yet, write a few guest posts that you can link to. Or take on a pro bono project for a respectable nonprofit that you're, you'd like to support, one that you might support anyway. You know, I know this is pretty basic advice, but in this case, that's what was needed. There's still a lot of work to do before this site is going to bring in freelance leads. So folks, make sure you nail those basics of building a sensible professional site. A personal blog is not a portfolio sample, and it doesn't belong on a site designed to bring in leads. If you want your own blog to serve as your first portfolio sample, it needs to be relevant to your target clients. Next, I want to move on to a question from Andy Van Slyke. He says, I'm a college student right now, living at my parents' house and getting a lot of support from them, so I'm not really dependent on an income at the moment. A couple days ago, I started writing for a content mill. He mentioned the name, but to protect him, I'm going to leave that name out. I don't want the company to see themselves mentioned in the show notes here and have him get in trouble or lose his gig. Um, and then Andy asks, you know, maybe you've heard of it. He said, based on things I've read on the site, I know you're not a big fan of middlemen companies that pair freelancers with clients, but I'm trying to build a portfolio from the ground up so I can eventually pay my way through school writing. I don't need to be paid well right away, but I would rather gain experience and build myself a portfolio that will impress clients than waste my time. I guess what I'm asking is, what's the best place online to look for an entry-level technical writing job? I'd actually not heard of this site that Andy brought up before, so I took a look, and my gut reaction was to run. The site itself isn't terribly professional or easy to navigate. There's no basic about page, for example, to get a feel for what the company is all about, and that's just where the problem started. The navigation was strange. A service-oriented site should never have external ads on it, Certainly not an Amazon ad block. That was odd. There were very few clients and examples featured on the site. And the copy felt oddly generic. It's something about it just felt really strange reading it. Now beyond that, I want to say that there's nothing wrong with working with middlemen clients. I actually don't have any problem with that. I have a problem with middlemen in the sense of Elance and skeezy bidding marketplaces with a race to the bottom mentality that like to take a cut 
and demand how you should have working interactions with your clients. But that's a whole nother episode right there. A middleman client would be something like a marketing firm, PR firm, and a content mill is not that. Now, the site that Andy mentioned, it doesn't really strike me as a content mill at all. It looks more like some kind of marketing firm offering every service they could think of, which they're apparently outsourcing to folks like freelance writers like Andy. Now, there's nothing wrong with this, but there are a few things to keep in mind. First, you're technically working for them, not the end client. And sometimes you're not even allowed to say that you've done work for the end client. So check your contract carefully. There might be a non-disclosure clause in there somewhere because the marketing firm sometimes doesn't want their end clients knowing that they're subcontracting the work to freelancers. You should also know that middleman clients sometimes go for full rights grabs so that they can sell any rights to their own clients because their clients might all want different things. So to cover themselves, they might simply demand all rights from their freelancers so they don't have to negotiate everything on a case-by-case basis. And third, while you can find more serious middlemen clients who pay professionals appropriately, many of these online marketing outfits pay very poorly. And that's because they market themselves as being cheap or affordable, as they like to call it, And they have to get you to work for less than they're charging their own clients. So if they want to offer low rates to seem competitive, then they expect you to drop your rates too. Now, when you're working for companies like these, you should have already set your own freelance rates. And then you only take on middleman clients who can afford you. Don't fall into the trap of one of their most common arguments, which is you should work for less because we bring you a lot of work. That is complete crap. What you have to remember is that your security and stability as a freelance writer depends on your ability to diversify your client list. This way, if one client drops you, your income never takes such a big hit that it would put your business at risk. Committing to a ton of work from one company means you're giving up some of that security, which is an important part of freelancing and it's an important right independent contractors have. If anything, you should be charging more for their exclusive demand of your time, not less. The difference with content mills is that their company is hiring huge numbers of content creators because they put value on quantity over quality, and it generally shows. Writers tend to be paid poorly, and more traditional clients will frequently look down on mill work when you try to use it as a clip. Some won't even hire you if you try to use content mill work as a clip. So if you're looking to build a portfolio that's going to impress future clients, content mills are not really a safe bet. Now, when you start off working for low-paying clients, you aren't doing yourself any favors. Low-paying gigs tend to breed more low-paying gigs. They don't generally lead to much more lucrative assignments. And yes, before people jump on me, I know there are exceptions, but it's also foolish to go into business counting on being an exception to the rule. Instead, focus on finding gigs that pay a rate appropriate for your experience level. My general recommendation for new writers is to look for gigs that pay at least 50 per post um, or per page or per article early on, assuming that you have solid writing skills to begin with. You know, I mean, look, if you're, you're trying to write for English-speaking markets, English isn't your first language, and you have a long way to go, you're probably not going to get that. You know, you got to work on that. But once you have all the basic skills set, then 
there's no reason why you can't make $50 per post or article or per page for larger assignments. Now, you really don't need to accept less than that. So, and then what you do is you increase your rates over time as you get better, as you build a bigger portfolio, and as you gain relevant credentials, such as if Andy's future degree would be related to his technical writing work. Now, technical writing is a pretty broad area, so I'm not sure what Andy's ideal gig is right now, but somewhere to start is guest posting. Write about technology for a few big blogs to get some portfolio pieces under your belt. Have a professional website up and use the bio area from each guest post to send professional clients over to that service site where they can learn more and hire you. Or better yet, drive them to a sign-up page for your email list. For early paying gigs, keep an eye on job boards. The All Indie Writers job board is one example where I only feature gigs with advertised pay rates. So you're never left guessing or trying to negotiate with cheap-ass prospects who expect you to work for next to nothing. You can find that at allindiewriters.com slash jobs. And at the same time, though, don't get caught up in job boards. You know, don't obsess over looking for gigs because most of the best gigs are not publicly advertised. So, yes, you can find gems there, but don't make that your primary way of looking for clients. Instead, focus on your professional website and your business blog to gain visibility guest post, release a short ebook or a white paper, especially if you're a technical writer, get a white paper out there and have that target your ideal clients. Those can be great authority building pieces. And don't be afraid to go out there and pitch the kinds of companies and publications that you really want to work for. Sometimes the best clients are the ones who don't even realize they need you until you get in touch with them and you pitch them on something and show them what you can do for them. And Andy, I hope that helps. Our final question for this episode comes from Anne Wayman. Um, I'm sure a lot of freelance writers who read All Indie Writers are familiar with Anne. Anne runs aboutfreelancewriting.com, and she runs a writing community that I'm a part of at aboutwritingsquared.com. Um, I'm not going to read Anne's direct question. It was you know, she emailed me privately about a situation and I asked if I could share the basic story here with you so I'm going to paraphrase. Um, basically Anne was offered $100 to put text links on her blog and she just came to me to see what my thoughts were because she knew I had experience with various types of ad income on blogs. So I no longer offer any paid text links on any of my sites and this is a result of Google thinking it's their place to tell site owners what kinds of ads they can and can't use on their sites. Um, I've said it before, and I'll probably say it again. I have a very love-hate relationship with Google. And one of my biggest issues with them is the fact that because their algorithms are incapable of determining which links are paid for, which links are not, and because they choose to use links as such a strong metric in their rankings, they basically expect you to do their job for them and no follow certain links or not accept any kind of paid links. Now, as somebody who works so much with independent professionals and small businesses where owners often don't know about no follow, they don't understand that. And frankly, they don't want to have to go in there and change their code just to appease Google. I have a real issue with that. You know, it's not a big deal for me because I understand it and do it, but it's the principle of it. Um, but, you know, I've 
ranted about this whole situation before. I'm not going to go into all the details. Suffice it to say, the biggest blog I had at that time where I did offer these kinds of advertisements, it was harshly penalized, very harshly penalized. Now, I was smart enough to diversify my traffic sources, so I was able to stand my ground for years and not have to worry about it knocking out all my traffic, but not all bloggers or business owners are going to be in that position. And if you rely on Google for any significant portion of your traffic, then you need to be careful with private advertising, especially text link ads. And so what I told Anne privately was that if you do decide to sell text links, to make sure that A, the links are no follow, and to make sure that your links are clearly disclosed as paid. Um, that's to keep you in line with the FTC guidelines if you are the advertiser is based in the US. Um, but it's also just a smart thing to do as far as building trust with your own readers. Now, if you do decide to sell these links and they're going to be no follow, make sure that's clear up front too, because there are some advertisers who actually won't pay for no follow links. You know, make sure that they're clear on what they're going to get. You know, it has to all be about visibility on your site and traffic, that they're not trying to get link juice from you to improve their rankings. As for the price, you know, Anne was curious if $100 sounded about right. I told her, you know, there's really no way for me to know that. I'd charge a monthly fee, not a one-time fee. Um, I think one-time ad fees are a really bad idea. If you're penalized and you want to remove those links later, you might not be able to if someone paid for a permanent link, for example, unless you want to refund their money. And when it comes to the monthly payments for links, it should be based on the amount of traffic your site gets and how responsive your audience is to ads, which you might not know yet if you aren't running any. So I was looking around and Yara Starek has a formula over at Entrepreneur's Journey that works out very similar to how I used to price private ads. And I'll link to that in the show notes, which you can find at allindywriters.com slash podcast slash 16. And the basic formula that he talks about is taking your number of daily visitors and dividing it by 10 to get your monthly price for an ad. So if you have 500 unique visitors per day, now keep in mind that's not the number of visits or the number of page views or the number of hits, um, but unique visitors per day. If you have 500 of them, divide that by 10, you'd get $50 per month for an ad. If you're seeing more like 5,000 unique visitors every day, then you could charge more like 500 per month. You're going to find out whether or not people are willing to pay it. And ultimately, that's a good way to price your ads. You know, you want to get as much as you can, whatever the market will bear. If people aren't buying the ads, you might need to lower your price. If you're constantly selling out of ad inventory, then you might want to raise your price. But it, it's just a rough guideline. It gives you somewhere to start. But, you know, prices depend on more than just traffic, too. You'll also want to consider where the ad will be placed. If it's above the fold, you should charge more than if it's a link tucked into the body of your content or down at the bottom of your site. Now, the other thing I suggested to Anne is that she look around at similar sites in the niche and see if any of them mention their ad rates. It's tough to compare without knowing their traffic stats, too, although some will actually 
mention traffic stats on their ad sales pages. Um, but it'll give you a range to work with. You know, you'll know which companies are paying these rates and it could give you a good idea of who to target to see if they're interested in sponsoring your site as well. And that is all I have for you today. If you have follow-up questions to any of the topics discussed in this episode, submit those or any other writing-related questions to be answered in a future podcast episode through the contact form at allindywriters.com slash podcast. You can also email me at jen, which is J-E-N-N, at allindywriters.com or by leaving me a voicemail at 484-575-1345. You can find show notes and related links for this episode at allindywriters.com slash podcast slash 16. You can also access this podcast, audio blog posts, and related audio productions by visiting freelancetheater.com. You've been listening to the All Indie Writers Podcast with Jen Mattern, a freelance theater production. Freelance theater. It's all writers need for life's little episodes.